We have uh, quite a treat for us today. Uh, Matt and Valerie are down in Central Texas uh, uh, getting some rest. Once a year, a, a pastor friend of his invites them down to come for a time of relaxation and renewal, and they do that. Uh, and in his absence, uh, we have today Dr. Matthew McKellar. Many of you will not remember that uh, uh, six years ago, Dr. McKellar was our interim pastor while we were waiting for Matt to finish up his semester at seminary and then join us the first Sunday in June 2012. But Dr. McKellar was our interim pastor. Uh, He served uh, from about January until the end of May, and uh, we've asked him to come back and and preach again uh, today. So uh, if you would, uh, not only give him a warm welcome because he's a returning interim pastor, he is professor of preaching at Southwestern Seminary, but he's also uh, Matt's dissertation advisor. So if we get on his bad side... Pray for him, and he's going to have that cap and gown on in December. I'm banking on it, and we're going to get him across the finish line. And uh, I just got to say, when you have an official hand model in your church... I don't know how to top that, Justin. That's, that's just really incredible. Uh, so I know things are going great when you're cranking out hand models like Justin. So it's really great to be back with you. We're going to continue this morning the series in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, today verses 14 through 21. I really appreciate, and you are indeed blessed, uh, that you have a pastor who opens up the Word and just follows that, that word from God like Matt did last week and I'm sure has done throughout all this, this series. So we're continuing to look at this idea of applying wisdom. Applying wisdom. And of course, Paul's idea of wisdom, if you really want to understand biblical wisdom, you do have to go back to chapter 1, don't you? Verses 18 through 25. You know, the... the preaching of the cross, the word of the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so you don't have to be an astute theologian, you don't have to be an uh, Einstein-connected nuclear physicist to know that Scripture is telling us, right, that the power of Christianity, the power of the church, the power of the gospel resides in this message of Jesus crucified in our place as our substitute, right? That the power rests in the sacrificial death of Christ and then in our commitment to Him and then in our following Him along the path of giving ourselves away because of that fundamental essential truth. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You follow along whatever version you have, but would you join me as we stand out of honor and out of reverence for God's holy and inerrant and perfect word, and you just follow along as I read these verses, because this is what God wants to talk to us about today through the power of His Holy Spirit. The Word of God says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts now and make us different people because you've met us in your word today. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Many years ago, I heard the story of a a middle-aged, older couple. Their children were grown. They were living in, uh, in the city. And the wife was going to go overseas on a excursion with two or three of her friends. She was going to be gone about 10 days, about two weeks. And she was really excited about the trip, but there were really two concerns she had. Number one, she had this pet poodle named Fifi. And Fifi was a, almost like a human to her. I'm, I'm not a big dog person, but I have friends and family members who have animals. They're fur babies. And so I understand that. But this was her fur baby, okay? She was also concerned for her, her aging mother, but her husband says, hey, I got things covered. You go, you, you enjoy your trip. You can call and check on things when you need to. And so she goes on the trip. Well, now you know what's about to happen. What happens when the husband is a home alone with the dog, with the precious dog? Well, despite the warnings that she had given him, she uh, probably should have been concerned because the first day out, he lets the dog out in the backyard to run around a little bit and... He goes back out, calls the dog in. The dog's nowhere to be found. And about that time, he hears this crash. And sure enough, the dog's run out in the street. The dog's been hit. He rushes the dog to the veterinarian. And the dog doesn't make it. So he is devastated. What am I going to do? And he thinks, you know, I, I, cannot, I cannot bear delivering this news. And I know my wife's going to call. So he comes up with this plan. She calls him and she says, hey, honey, how's the dog? And he said, well, um, we've had a few problems. The dog got out today. Well, is she okay? How's Fifi? Oh, I think she's probably okay. I think she's up on the roof. And so that suffice. Well, hurry up and get her down from there. Well, the next day she calls and... And she asks about the dog again, and the husband says, well, got her off the roof, and, and I think she might have a few little minor in, injuries. I've, I've, she's at the vets now, okay? So you, you see what's happening? And about the fourth day, she calls and says, well, I need to know how Fifi is, sweetheart. I'm sorry to tell you, Fifi didn't make it. Well, the wife just erupts in tears. She is just devastated. And so after the tears and the sobs subside, she says to her husband, sweetheart, you know, I don't know if you did that the best way. I I wish you could have just come clean with me. You just could have hit me with it straight, you know? Why did you, you know, why did you hold off just telling me the truth? He said, oh, you know, I I knew how much you love this dog, and I hate so much what happens, and, you know, I I just didn't want to hit you with that news all of a sudden. She said, by the way, how's my mother? And he said, she's on the roof. That, that story, and you're thinking, what is he doing telling that story? Hang with me here. 
that story really reminds me of a simple truth. There is no easy way to deliver unpleasant news, is there? As much as I want to, as much as you want to put it off, there's just no easy way to deliver a difficult message. And what makes it even more difficult is that often the messages that we need to be delivering are in that category of the difficult. And I would submit to you that one of the great problems in the the church in the Western world today is that we've largely lost this capacity to confront in love, to address difficult issues, to address the so-called 800-pound elephant in the room. Well, as we come to our text today, you're going to see the Apostle Paul under the leadership of the Holy Spirit as he writes. You're going to see him address the 800-pound elephant in the room and do it with clarity and conviction, but also with a spirit of gentleness. Now, a little background. Last week, Matt did a beautiful job in in reminding us of how Paul nailed the Corinthians for their their arrogant self-satisfaction. You know, not long ago, I heard Alistair Begg say, the whole culture of evangelicalism in the United States and in the Western world is one of self-promotion. And I think he's largely right. It's too easy for us to celebrate our own victories, to celebrate our own conquests, to talk about what we've done, where we've been, and digital media, social media just makes it all the more easier, doesn't it? One would almost get the idea that it really is about us. Well, Paul addresses that arrogant self-centeredness in the Corinthians, and not only that, he contrasts the self-exaltation, remember, of these super apostles in Corinth, he contrasts their self-exaltation with the abject humiliation of the apostles. And Matt brought that out last week. It's very, very important. He reminded us again of the danger of the paralysis and the poison of pride. You know, we were singing about it this morning. I was reminded again, you know, what do we have to be proud about? What do I have? What do you have that isn't a gift to you from God? He's a good, good father. He's been good to all of us. And that sets the stage for verses 14 through 21. And what's going on here is that Paul is going to move on to to state his objective in writing. Why is he writing? Why is he writing this letter? And why is he just finished this statement that's really strong and as Matt reminded you last week, is somewhat sarcastic. You guys have already arrived. You don't need any more teaching. You're kings. Why does... Why does Paul do that? And then Paul will assert the uniqueness of his relationship with these Corinthians. He moves on from there to offer what I'll call an apostolic command, the only imperative command in this whole passage. We're going to look at it. Be imitators of me. And then finally, Paul is going to inform his readers of the intent of his impending visit. Oh, he's going to show up and things are going to really get real in Corinth. That's Paul's message. So let's look at it together. But as we do that, I want you to keep this basic truth in mind. Here it is. When we appropriately apply wisdom, the wisdom, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when we appropriately apply the wisdom of God, it generates constructive accountability transparent authenticity 
and gospel accuracy. When we apply the wisdom of God appropriately, it generates, it generates in our lives constructive accountability, transparent authenticity, and gospel accuracy. I want you to remember that as we look through the text. Well, let's look at it together. First of all, let's observe Paul's objective in writing. In verse 14, you've got another these things there. You saw that last week. I do not write these things. What are these things? Well, generally, I could say to you that Paul is referring to everything he's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1, 1 to 4, 13. But I think even more specifically, Paul is dealing with what he's just written in verses 6 through 13. Why is Paul writing with such strong words? Why is Paul invoking even sarcasm? Why does Paul contrast the self-exaltation of the super apostles in Corinth with the humiliation of the true apostles? Why does he do that? Well, we get the answer. We get a negative and a positive. First of all, Paul says, not shaming you, I'm not writing to shame you. I'm writing to admonish or to warn you. Now, this word shame or shaming, it's a participle. In verse 14, it's an interesting word. The word means to cause someone to turn in or to recoil. Isn't that interesting? That's Paul's way of saying, I'm not writing this to beat you, to hammer you, or to make you feel so miserable that you just turn in on yourself. I'm not trying to shame you just so I can feel better about myself. You ever had somebody shame you like that? They verbally abuse you or they beat you down with words in such a way that it just really stings to the core. The bottom line, so often people shame other people and want to make them miserable so they, they can feel better about themselves. Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm not writing to shame you. I am writing to admonish you, admonish you. Interesting word. Uh, in fact, the word that Paul uses here gives us our English word borrowed from the Greek, nuthetic. You ever been to a nuthetic counselor? The idea is to offer constructive warning, direct counsel. Now think about it. Let's say there's someone you love, a spouse, a child. And let's say that uh, down a certain road somewhere out here in Greenville, somewhere near Greenville, you know that down this certain road, there is a bridge, and that bridge is out. That bridge has been destroyed for some reason. And you know that if people go down that road, they are in grave danger. Well, if you care about that someone in your life, what are you going to do? You're going to pick up your cell phone. When you get that news, you're going to call your loved one who may be headed in that direction and say, hey, that bridge is out. There's great danger ahead. Don't go that way. Who among us here would say, oh, you know, you probably ought not to do that because you're kind of judging that person. You're kind of saying that person might not have the good wisdom to know which way to go. No, you don't think about that. You're on your cell phone saying, man, hey, I'm warning you. Why? Because you love people. Paul is admonishing. He is warning here. He's offering counsel. He's concerned for God's best in the lives of others. 
And so this warning, this admonishing fosters an accountability with the recipient. He's not, uh, he's not trying to abuse anybody. He's trying to warn and to do it in a spirit of love. Now, would, would you look at verse 14? How do I know it's a spirit of love? As my beloved children. Literally, as my greatly loved children. These are his spiritual children. I don't have to tell you. Shallow sentiment seldom issues warnings. You know why? Because it cares more about being liked than the welfare of another person. Did you hear that? That's something the church needs to pick up today. Uh, Now, I know there are people who can go through life and it's like their purpose, their objective statement in life is how many people can I tick off? All right? I'm not advocating that. I'm saying so often the problem we have today is we care so much about the other person's thoughts, what they might think, how we might perceive that we jettison the idea of biblical authority and biblical standards and we think, you know, I know I ought to warn that person, I ought to confront him, I ought to confront her about that, but oh, I don't want them to think I'm trying to be a judge in his or her life. You see what Paul's doing here? He cares enough to confront. One of my New Testament professors at seminary years ago used to remind us in class, gentlemen, admonition is love's authentic expression in time of danger. Admonition is love's authentic expression in time of danger. I stand before you today and I think about where I would be were it not for the admonition I received from my parents. When I had some really cool, really what I thought was great idea, and my dad would sit me down and say, you know, I just don't think that's a really good idea. I can tell you, when I chose to listen to him, I was spared a whole lot of heartache. Admonition is love's authentic Warning in time of danger. Now, let's move on to verse 15. So, we know Paul's purpose in writing. I'm not writing to shame you, not to browbeat you, not to hammer you, not to beat you up so I can feel better about myself. I'm writing because I care about you. I'm concerned about your Christ likeness. And I want to warn you the bridge is out down the road here. The bridge is out. You are so locked in on the appearance of things, on the, on the, uh, the outward look of things. Uh, you're, you're so concerned about the sizzle that you're neglecting the steak, we might say. And I want to warn you. You're so concerned about the, 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 the puff of your own resources that you've forgotten the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, that's why he's writing. Now look at the next thing. Note his understanding of their relationship. Verse 15 For though you have countless guides, literally 10,000, the Greek word is myrios, from which we get the word myriad. For though you have a myriad of counselors. You see, Paul's kind of going back into that sarcasm mode. You know, you've got all the answers. You've got all the best experts. You've got all the best resources. You have a myriad of counselors. You have guides. The word that Paul uses speaks of one who offers training, a tutor who walks through the different stages of development. Paul says, I know, I know you've got it all. But then notice the contrast there. But not many fathers. Yeah, that's an understatement, isn't it? 
In fact, you only have one father. And Paul says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I want to remind you of our unique relationship. I am your spiritual father. Literally, I, you have begotten in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You are my spiritual children. I preached the gospel initially. I sowed the seed that bore fruit in your conversion to Jesus Christ. Man, do you see Paul? He's writing about accountability, and then he moves to this transparent authenticity. Paul says, look, I'm not really concerned with how you take this. I'm just going to tell you like it is. I'm your spiritual daddy. I'm your spiritual father. No, I'm not Christ. I couldn't receive Christ for you, but I preached the gospel. I sowed the seed, and the Lord used it to change your hearts. I am your spiritual father. I love that transparent authenticity. Well, then we move on to verses 16 and 17. So we got Paul's purpose in writing and his unique understanding of their relationship. Well, then in verses 16 and 17, it really ramps up a notch. In these verses, particularly in verse 16, Paul is going to issue a command. Paul says, I'm writing to warn you. You're my spiritual children and we're waiting. All right? What do you want us to do, Paul? And Paul issues an apostolic command. Look at it in the text. The only command in this passage, an imperative command. I urge you, great word there. I come alongside you as your spiritual parent. I come alongside you and I urge you then become imitators of me. The Greek verb there is mimetai, from which we get our word mimic. Paul's saying, be like me. Well, immediately we're thinking, wait a minute, Paul. What's going on here? You're almost guilty of the same self-exaltation that you're ascribing to the Corinthians. What's going on here? No, Paul is not guilty of blowing the resources of his own bubble. He's not guilty of an ego trip. He hasn't become some egomaniacal apostle. No, what's happening here, Paul is saying, on the basis of my role as your spiritual father, I love you. I want God's best for you. On the basis of that, I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And that's not to say was, that Paul was perfect and inerrant in his person. He certainly wasn't. You and I aren't. We, none of us will be this side of heaven. But the point is, there was consistency in the way Paul lived and the way Paul taught. He was a battle-tested veteran of the truth, of the power of the gospel. Paul says, I want you to quit being enamored with these people who sound good, who want to water down the gospel, who, who want to say you don't have to suffer, that you don't need to sacrifice, that you can offer uh, a number of different messages. I want you to leave that alone. And I want you to align yourselves with the wisdom of God which centers in the cross and of which I am a battle-tested veteran. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16? Paul was real. He knew that he was the chief, the worst of sinners, but, but the Lord transformed his life. And Paul lives out the gospel. In fact, we could say it's really true in Paul's life. What he did spoke a lot louder than what he said. 
and what he wrote. And so Paul is drawing on that here. Imitate me. Become imitators of me. Mimic me. Exactly what? Well, in the context of this text, preach Christ and him crucified as the fundamental foundation as well as the superstructure of the church. You know one reason I'm so excited about Ridgecrest Baptist Church is because I know Matt Beasley loves the Lord Jesus, loves God's word, and loves you. And I know that he is totally bought in to the idea of the gospel as the wisdom and the power of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. I know that for a fact. And it makes me thrilled and excited because I know that his priority is the Bible priority. And when the leadership's priority is the Bible priority, then guess what? The whole church says, yep, I'm measuring everything by Scripture. Yep, that's right. That's the pattern. That's the path we have to follow as a church. That's what Paul's saying here. We want to be a cross-centered community. That's what Paul's saying. And that cross-centered community manifests itself in costly discipleship. And it conforms to biblical revelation. Did you hear that? What's the key to the church in the 21st century? New programs, new plans, new flash, new dash. No, no, no. It's manifesting love for Jesus in costly discipleship and conforming to the Word of God. I'm telling you, there's nothing more attractive and nothing more powerful and nothing more beautiful than that. Paul knew it. Paul knew it. And so he says, I want you to follow me in that. In fact, he says, that's why I sent Timothy to remind you that everywhere I go and in every church where I open my mouth to speak, I am teaching this same thing. There's a fundamental consistency to it. Look at that word remind. It's interesting. Paul says, that's why I sent Timothy to remind you of the power and the wisdom of the gospel centered in the cross. That's an interesting word to remind you. It's a compound word. It starts with a negative, and then the last part of the word gives us our English word, amnesia. You ever known someone that had amnesia? They can't remember. My wife accuses me of that all the time when I forget important dates or obligations. What's wrong with you? You have amnesia? We just talked about that last week, and I say, well, I don't know. Maybe it's just selective hearing. I don't know. I'm 36 years into this thing. But isn't that interesting? That's why I sent Timothy to correct, to remediate your amnesia. You have forgotten. You've forgotten. The church isn't built on a puff of arrogance from people. The church is built on the power of a substituted Jesus. And the sooner his readers get their minds wrapped around that, the healthier they'll be. And so it follows today. Well, a, a great text. That's why I sent Timothy. Now, look at the, the last movement in verses 18 through 21. Here's why I'm writing, not to shame you. Not to shame you, but to, but to warn you. And I want to remind you of my, my unique relationship with you. And on the basis of that unique relationship, I want you to follow in my footsteps as I follow hard after the Lord Jesus. And He is the center and focus of our existence. And finally, verses 18 through 21, Paul says, I, 
I'm planning to visit. So let's recognize the intent of this planned visit. Paul observes that some are arrogant. Literally, the word means puffed up. One commentator in the 19th century says, Paul is calling his opponents, the super apostles at Corinth, he's calling them puffed up gas bags. (laughs) you, You guys are acting as if I'm not coming, as if I'm not real, as if I'm not going to hold you accountable, as if I'm not going to be authentic in front of you, as if I'm not going to care about you. And so Paul says, wait, guys, I want you to know I have scheduled an intervention. Y'all ever watch that program on television? You know, there's, there's a family member caught in the throes of just a nasty, degrading, uh, abusive addiction to drugs. And the family members come around and say, you know, our loved one is destroying himself or herself. We're going to stage this intervention. It's an emotional time, right? I thought of that because when Paul comes to these verses, he's saying, look, I'm planning on coming. I got news for you. It's going to get real when I show up in a hurry. Some of you are arrogant. You don't, you don't think I'm coming. But I'm coming. I'm coming. There's going to be a performance review, a performance evaluation. This is a discovery expedition. And there's going to be, where necessary, corrective measures taken. Now look at the contrast. Paul says... Paul says, I'm going to find out not their talk, not their many words, but their, their power. That is to say, I'm not so much concerned with the words that come out of their mouth. I'm concerned with their conformity to the power of godly wisdom which centers in the cross. Don't look at this text and say, Paul is elevating miraculous signs over the Word of God. No, he's not doing that. He is contrasting a sub-biblical conception of the gospel with the glorious and appropriate conception of the gospel which centers in the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you ever get to the place as an individual or as a church where you want to apologize for the offense of the cross, you've got a serious spiritual problem. There is no such thing as a Christless, crossless Christianity. Gladly, Paul embraced the shame and the glory of the cross. And he's saying, that's what you need to do. You, you, you people are living in a dream world, he's saying. You boast of your own learning and your philosophy. You, you've got head before heart. You're all theory and no reality. You ignore your, your true spiritual condition. And how do we know that? Guess what happens in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I know you're living in a dream world because you've got almost unmentionable, sordid, evil sin going on, immorality in your congregation, and you're refusing to hold anybody accountable for it. What a lack of concern for God's glory. What a lack of concern and love for fellow believers who profess the name of Jesus. And it's going on in churches all over our land today. See, a lot of times this stuff makes us nervous. Because it calls us to be transparent and authentic and accountable and to hold other people accountable. Why? Because the truth of Jesus is worthy of our complete focus. Mm. And then notice what Paul does. He caps off, he ties the bow on this whole section with a declaration. The kingdom of God, that is... 
the rule and the reign of God, past, present, and future, the rule of God and the reign of God does not consist in talk. It consists in power. For the word of the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And then Paul issues a challenge to these people who are living in the kingdom of their own vain imaginations. They're so proud they imagine themselves as having all the answers, having already arrived. And so Paul says, what do you want here? Do you want me to show up with the rod of corrective discipline? See, he's drawing on that father-child relationship. You know, think about it, parents, or think about it, children, <laughs> when, when you've been disciplined. There are times as a parent, we have to show up to a scene with the rod of corrective discipline. doesn't mean we don't love our child. I remember when I was little getting that little statement, maybe you've heard it. Before the discipline was applied, I'd hear it. Son, this is going to hurt you more than me. I'd want to say, Dad, let's change places. <laughs> but as a parent now, I understand that. It's a hurtful thing, isn't it? But you love that child. Paul says, hey, if you persist, if you persist in being enamored with these super apostles who are negating the gospel, I'm going to have to show up and provide some corrective discipline. But if you listen and you think about what I've written, I'm also hoping to come to you with confirming gentleness. My wife and I have three daughters, and when they were growing up, by no means would I profess to be the perfect parent. But, but one thing that was important to me, and many of you parents have experienced this, after, don't build your life on a puff of air. Build your life, build your church on the power of the cross and everything that means and implies. Christ is my substitute, my only hope, my only confidence. My life surrendered and lived out, not for my own sake, but for the sake of others, because Jesus has first loved me. Oh, you've got these people then and now. They're boasting, they're relying on their pride as in what is fleeting and what is failing and what is but a vapor. But remember, when we appropriately apply the wisdom of God... It generates constructive accountability, transparent authenticity, and gospel accuracy or conformity. I'd put it like this. The Apostle Paul was woke. <laughs> he was woke to the idea that the greatest need of the church is to get woke to the word of the cross as the power of God and the wisdom of God. All other ground is sinking sand. It's just a puff of air. What kind of church you want to be? What kind of Christian you want to be? Puff of air, power of God. Paul says, I love you enough to warn you and admonish you. No puff of air, power of God, power of God. 
power of God. Lord, we want not what we want. We want not what we can do. We want what you want and what you alone can do. Do it in our lives individually. Do it in our church corporately. Do it across the world for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.